what the topic is after the recording is started. Sure, I'm going to get some lemonade, but I'm, I'm okay. listening. <laughs> All right. Oh, you have one of those? Okay. Yeah. Oh, I see. Now you guys are part. Okay. Yep. Robert's getting something to drink, and um, I'll basically introduce the topic while he's he's gone. Is that it's an article that was written by someone who had some sort of brain damage, and mm -hmm. that that started with the, then the article about um, uh, electroshock therapy, because they're still doing that. I mean, I would have thought that after the movie one through over the cuckoo's nest back in the 1960s that they would have stopped such stuff. But according to the research, it looks like that about 120,000 people uh, a year are still in electroshock therapy in the United States because that seems to be a treatment for depression. Holy moly. <laughs> uh, and the question that the article is, is uh, talking about is, is that in this electroshock therapy, as well as some sort of blunt force injuries and other things like this, has to do with a loss of memory. There's an old word called amnesia, that when people forget stuff and when they've forgotten like everything and have no memories of stuff, that brings in a lot of confusion and doubt because now we don't know anything. And so the question that this guy had was uh, with the electroshock therapy, does, uh, does it present the issue of either I have no memory and I've lost all the memory, and, but I could be happy versus I'm going to be miserable and depressed, but at least I can remember what happened. Okay. <laughs> This seems to be then a lose-lose situation in all regards. Is that you have to give up uh, uh, your memories in order to be happy. But guess what? Those people who go through that, that had an electroshock therapy, that uh, it may get them out of their depression, but it doesn't make them happy. But in fact, now they're unhappy because they can't remember why they were unhappy. <laughs> <laughs> they're unhappy because they can't remember why they were unhappy. <laughs> but the habit of being unhappy is still there. And so the question is, is that aren't some memories valuable, useful and wholesome? The answer to that is absolutely. But that doesn't mean that all memories are valuable, useful, and wholesome. Some memories are, in fact, quite detrimental. For instance, if once an hour, every hour, you thought about your brother slapping you in the face when you were both 15, that's not going to be a particularly helpful memory to have whenever you're dealing with your brother. It's better to forget all about a whole bunch of stuff. And this is what the Buddha is talking about, is, is that this, the memories that come up while we're sitting, practicing being happy, we can forget about all the stuff that made us unhappy, but that doesn't mean that we're going to forget everything. 
And also what we're really talking about here is to have the emotional unloading in the sense that we can use the memory as like a vehicle, but we don't have to have that vehicle loaded down with the garbage of all the bad feelings that occurred when that incident happened. Hmm. Okay, I so a, there's yes. a question. Slash, so could you then have skillful remembering and unskillful remembering? Absolutely. That's what we're going into right now. That in fact, the electroshock therapy actually erases, or let us say not erases, but clouds up things that, uh, that are useful to remember. Mm. And the funny thing is, is that even when people have amnesia, they don't forget their English language. They don't forget how to walk. <clears throat> They don't forget uh, all kinds of things, but names and faces and other kinds of stuff like that, they don't remember. And so what we can think of it like this is everybody's got a closet and in the back of the closet is old stuff that you never pull out of the closet or look at. Now imagine that uh, a lot of old stuff gets put into the closet like a memory bank and you keep putting stuff in and putting stuff in and putting stuff in and it's not ever organized. That means that when you go to look for something, more than likely you're going to find something else in the way. Yes, yes. Okay. And so let us say that we're looking for something blue, but we keep seeing all of these um, <clears throat> things that are almost blue, but not blue. And some of them are sharp objects. And so we go to try to get the things out of the way so we can see what we want and we get stabbed or stuck with something else. This is what we mean by free association, that the mind just kind of wanders around. And so the, uh, what we're going through is now a training, which is also another way of saying that we're going to organize our closet. We're going to go in there and inspect things and clean things out and throw a bunch of stuff out that we don't need anymore. Okay. And having an organized closet is a power. That's a skill. Now, um, the way to introduce this next topic is to talk about a particular sutta. And that sutta is number 12, the lion's roar. And in there, <clears throat> the Buddha, um, basically, it's a good idea to talk about the sutta in general. What happened is, is that Sariputta came back from alms round and told the Buddha that he had seen a, a monk who had been a monk, a bhikkhu, who had disrobed, and now he was in the village complaining about the Buddha having no superhuman um uh, talents, no superhuman skills. And then uh, what Sariputta repeats is, is that what he does say is, is the Buddha only teaches suffering and the end of suffering, and he teaches that well, and people are getting it. <laughs> but the guy's still angry at the Buddha because the Buddha <laughs> didn't teach him mm -hmm. what he wanted to know, which was about magical powers. <laughs> And the Buddha's answer to that is in several stages. And one of them is three items that the Buddha asked the question is, 
how can they possibly come up with these kind of beliefs from the teachings that we give? In other words, if we're giving the teachings of the Four Noble Truth and the Eightfold Noble Path and such like that, then how can people gain that this is going to allow the monk to fly through the air with the greatest of ease without a trapeze? That's a great question. <laughs> exactly. And so the first one was, uh, how can people possibly get this from the teachings of uh, the Buddha? And that is the, the one that is so famous that I had to, I didn't have to, I just kind of memorized it because I heard it so much and sing along. And that is that itipiso bhagava eraha samma sambuto icha charana sampano lukato lo gavitu anutaro bhagavati. The Buddha says about that phrase that is so common is how can people get that out of my teachings? Yeah. <laughs> and then the second one he has is, is that how can people uh, actually get out of the teachings, flying through the air, diving into the dirt, swimming around, walking on water, walking through walls and that kind of stuff. How can they possibly get those ideas from the actual teachings of the Buddha? Because this is what this guy was in the first part of the sutta was complaining about, that the Buddha didn't teach that stuff. He only taught Dukkha Dukkha Naroda. He didn't <laughs> teach magic. And then the third one. How can the people who understand the teachings of the Buddha actually see that the Buddha can surround another person's mind with his mind, encompass it, and know what someone is thinking? Now, actually, uh, Achan Po made a big point about this particular one, was telling me several times, you do not know what is in the mind of another. You only can do is see their behavior. And people are incongruent, which means that they'll have one thing on their mind and give you uh, behavior something where else. This, an example of that is someone telling a lie. That liars actually will demonstrate that incongruity um, an example of that is making a statement and then trying to get everybody who's listening to you to agree by using gestures and mannerisms. Okay, this one is one of the favorite ones that people use. Watch my face very closely. I just lied to you. <laughs> Meaning forward, nodding your head, trying to get everybody to go along. In other words, if I can get you to nod your head, that means that you're buying my bullshit. <laughs> Another one is when we look over to someone else to get their approval, like Donald Trump will make a deliberate lie and then he'll look over to someone else or someone down in the audience to at least get them to agree with him. Okay, so <laughs> the point is that the Buddha is saying that you do not know what's in the mind of a person, but you can see their behavior. 
And then the Buddha gives this uh, definition that is the lion's roar. And that is what are the powers of a Buddha? And the first item on the list, which is, and always when we think of it like this, the most important thing is always done first. Oh, uh, quick the question. things that we most remember are the things that are either spectacular or the last thing that was said. Go ahead. Go ahead, uh, Robert. Um, so the second one was the, the okay, so the second thing was the powers. Um, and the third thing was reading my, uh, but what was reading. the first thing again that, uh, uh, that the Buddha is, the uh, is, uh, uh, actually the word is that he is a charioteer or a driver of gods and men, Deva hmm. Manusanam. Okay. That he is actually, uh, um, oh God, uh, okay. and, and it's translated as he's a trainer of gods and men. But in the um, uh, the sutta, the word is driver, like a charioteer. He doesn't train the horses. The charioteer doesn't train horses. He drives them after somebody else has trained them. Mm. Okay, and so that mm. means that they're giving so, extra power that that should not be there. And so in the English, they they've wrongly translated it from driver into uh, trainer. Mm. But the the point is that's the first one that the Buddha that ipitiso bhagawa eraha sama sambuto okay while that stuff may be true it is um, and here's an example the the loka vidu means the knower of the world and that that can be seen and in fact it's actually stated in the Vasudhimaga that that means that he knows every shark and every fish and every plankton. He's a knower of the world. He knows all about the world. And that's ridiculous. No one knows the world that well. All we need to know is enough about it to know is this dukkha or not. That's the only question. Not right. everything, but we only get one thing at a time, one by one as they occur. Is this dukkha or is this not dukkha? And, the, and uh, a knower of the world is a little bit higher than that. So what we mean by that uh, in an ordinary but practical noble sense would be that we know of the world what presents itself to us now as to whether that is dukkha or not. But the way that it's stated in the thing uh, is the knower of the world, which is giving him far more power than is there in reality, the same way as encompassing his mind uh, uh, or encompassing another person's mind with his mind. Can you to know what somebody is thinking. Got it. So, so these are the things. Can you repeat what the loka vidu so These are the things the Buddha cannot do. Loka vidu means the knower of the world, just like oh. Dhamma vidu is knower of the Dhamma, my good friend over on uh, Kosama. Uh, gotcha. Okay. And you can see the word Vidu is the same word as video. <laughs> this is an Indo-European language. <laughs> <laughs> and funny, you... I remember when I was at Swan uh, talk, would talk about films and stuff. Pardon? About what? I was saying. I remember. I remember. 
when I was at Swan Moke, I remember Dom Vito and his Dama talks. He would talk about film sometimes. He would talk about what sometimes? Film, like movies. I miss film. Hear me? F-I-L-M, film. Film. Movies. Like movies. Oh, like... films. Okay, right. I got it. Okay. Uh, yes. What, what would Vito say yeah. about films? It was a long time ago, but I remember he talked about like going to the movie theater as a kid, and he also talked about this movie that he saw, like um, about this big creature in the abyss. I forget the name, like Stranger, like uh, Alien from Another Galaxy or something like that, or Stranger from Another World. And he talked about that in one of his talks. It was really interesting, and I still remember it all these years later. Okay, all right. Yeah, do you know what I'm talking about? No, uh, I, I know there's a, uh, uh, a movie called The Abyss that came out about 1990 or something like that. And that and he became a monk in 1993. So he may have been talking about that. He used the word abyss, but I don't know what the story is that you're talking about. Yeah, no, I think it was this this movie about this alien that was like a black mass of goo um, or something along those lines. And it was. Oh, I've got one of those in another... the yard here someplace. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and I think he talked about how, like, he had, like, a spiritual experience where he saw something like that. And that was, uh, like, kind of what opened him up to spirituality. I believe that was the, what the talk was about, um, if I remember Dang, correctly. I want to start showing that pat goo to my <laughs> friends when they come over. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, <laughs> okay. Uh, do you know that? Well, story, was, uh, no, I don't. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't may know be it. misremembering it, but that it was a while ago. That was what I remembered. So, um, yeah. Anyway, it doesn't matter. No, he. But he's a really great historian. Many of the details that I've gotten about the, the yeah. deep dark ancient past, especially what India was like before the time in Buddha. I've gotten from him. He's quite a, a scholar like that, but I'm also a bit of a scholar too in, in that uh, respect. Anyway, back and to the actually, there's a there's a YouTube series of Dhammavidu in Hong Kong. I can drop it in the Sangha chat. I've got that. Yes, I I know. Um, yeah, that would be fun for people. Um, but anyway. Or you should have him on as a guest or something at some point. That would be great. That would that would not be possible. Oh, that's too bad. Because where he lives, there is no internet. There is no Wi-Fi. There is no cell tower. They live on a, a, a mountain that is remote enough. On, wow. a, on an out, outlying island that's remote enough. Sounds great. Yeah. <laughs> in fact, I know of one monk in particular who left Don Kim because he had no internet connection. Oh. He has to go walk about just to get his cell phone so that he can get close enough over the edge so that he can uh, have the cell phone being seen from the tower on the on the road somewhere below. Wow. Huh. And and oh. so it's very spotty. You cannot get good connections in general anywhere around there. You have to leave and go down the hill and, and things like that. Hmm. So anyway, uh, let's go oh, back. I'm not sure if it's worth mentioning anymore, but uh, back 
to that topic of knowing the world. Eric shared uh-huh. something with me uh, that Bikka Budadasa said. I don't know the, the actual full context of it, but uh, it was something like, um, he said something like, I would be afraid to see like some of these great wonders of the world, like the Grand Canyon, because all I would see is Idia Papachayata. Mm-hmm. Right, just see the cause and effect. In other words, we just recognize, oh, I see how this thing was built. I mean, this was water, and now let's go home. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 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 Uh, okay. That's like what you were saying. That has a whole lot past. to do with yeah. been there, done that. That, in fact, Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa spent quite a lot of time in India. It's, it's quite common for the Thai monks to go on pilgrimage to India. And so that what someone moke in the spiritual theater, there's literally hundreds of photographs from back in the 1930s when Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa was in India. So now that he's been to India and seen uh, Kishnagar and Lumpini, well, I don't think he had Lumpini, but uh, Bodh Gaya and uh, Isatanya and Varanasi and all of the sites in, what's the Grand Canyon here and there? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I mean, Eric and I were talking about uh, how we're starting to see some of that, too. Like, we kind of pointed out how in this forest, it just seems like you'll see a particular fern and a particular tree together and a particular type of, you know, surrounding environment. And you can kind of see the cause and effect playing out as to why things are the way that they are. Excellent. Excellent. Which is, let's get back then to the sutta and then back to memory because this fits right in. Okay, so after the Buddha talks about the things that how could people possibly believe this kind of stuff based upon the actual teachings of the Buddha, he then talks about things that are a factor of the path. And there are 10 items on that list. The first item on the list is always the most important one. And so this is something to really understand in this regard and that is is that the first knowledge or the first uh power of the buddha is is he knows the difference between what's possible and what's not possible okay it is not possible for you to jump into the dirt and swim around And come back up to the surface and then walk on the surface again. I mean, if you fall in one time, won't you fall in with every step you take? How can you get out of the ground? It's like water. Once you're in the water, how can you stand up on top of the water? The next thing is how can you possibly (laughs) not need a bath after you're swimming in the dirt? And so this is what we mean then, this is an important or powerful thing, is to come to understand the things that are possible and the things that are not possible, because if we cling to the impossible, we will always be unhappy and dissatisfied because we don't get what we want because we don't recognize that it's actually not available to us. So some things are impossible for one person and possible for another because one person has developed the skills that makes it possible and other people don't have the skills other things are just flat out impossible for everyone and so knowing what is possible and not possible is an is a major part of the spiritual awakening 
is when we give up magical beliefs and we give up things that we've heard about that we don't actually have any experience of. It's always hearsay. So this actually goes back to then the uh, the Kalama Sutta in the Anguttara Nikaya in the threes where the Buddha talks about um, don't take things because of tradition or because of hearsay or because of common knowledge or because you heard it from someone you trust or because it's written in a book or anything like that. You have to do your own investigation. And he even mentions confirmation bias in there, but it's not confirmation bias in the language that we use, but it's rather that just because you believed it or already that it confirms what you believe already still that's no reason to believe it the only reason for you to accept something is because you've evaluated it through that deep inspection okay that comes from uh, on another uh, point about that is in christianity uh, when they're arguing with atheists and what lot like that, they come with the, the, the phrase of lack of evidence is not evidence of absence. Absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. This is a Christian trip. In other words, just because you can't see it doesn't make that it's not true. The answer, though, is, is that once you do an absolute thorough investigation. Let's say that you're looking for a wristwatch and it was the last time place you saw it, it was in the room. And you go so far as to take every little item out of that room and completely inspect it completely. Anything that's the size of that wristwatch has been evaluated and searched and placed aside, taken out of the room, and now what's left is emptiness and there's no watch there. You can assume that the watch was not there. That's evidence of absence, is absence of evidence. This is all back to Sherlock Holmes. Sherlock Holmes can see what's going on because he knows not just with his spyglass what he does see, but he also recognizes things that have been removed from the room or other things that are missing, and that's also evidence. Okay, so this is what we mean then by with, with a correct evaluation and examination, we can see what's possible and not possible. It was not possible for that list watch to have been lost in that room. It's not in that room. It's not possible. Why? Because we've done a complete thorough investigation and the watch is not there. And we can do that same sort of thing with a god or a ghost. Mm -hmm. They're not there. Then, in fact, um, on the um, there was the educational channel and the um, uh, the history channel on the, on uh, um, uh, television on on cable cable uh, ch um, channels and both of them together would have uh, programs where people would go to every haunted house and every haunted building that they could locate in and outside the United States setting up all kinds of equipment, electromagnetic equipment, sound equipment, cameras, all kinds of stuff, and leave it there recording, trying to trap a ghost. And they went um, 
one series or one episode after another with spooky music, dark stuff, all kinds of possibilities. And at the end of every film, they would say, well, we didn't find anything here, but stay tuned for next week. <laughs> that is a thorough examination. They went out ghost hunting and they made sure that they could not find one because they did. I mean, they made sure by looking carefully that there were no ghosts to be found. But still, things go bump in the night. But here's an example, then, of after a thorough investigation, you can see what's possible and not possible. Ghosts are not possible because they have done all of the evaluations that they could. The same thing is true then with the Catholic Church. For 2,000 years, and really for more than a th uh, strongly for a thousand years since the monks became or the priests became celibate that with hundreds of thousands of priests over time the catholic church is really really strapped for finding actual miracles and actual saints they haven't canonized one person in 10 years or 20 years or so other than mother Teresa, and it's a pretty good point that uh, she really didn't deserve that canonization. They just needed to canonize somebody. <laughs> and so they have things like lores, and um, there's been quite a lot of research with, with lores. Um, Eric, is that you calling? Yes, yeah, Eric's calling in. Keyshawn's keyshawn's Okay. All right. So now you've got the other. <laughs> oh. So that's enough to understand right from the very beginning that uh, that a major point about an enlightened one or one who is awake is they know the difference between what's possible and not possible. The second teaching of the Buddha in this list. Hey, hey, Dombrado, I wanted to mention that uh, I feel like, I don't know, that resonated with me a little bit with our last discussion, because all we talked about was yesterday was just get comfortable. I was mm -hmm. like, that's simple enough. <laughs> that's possible. It's nothing really that special. It's just like get comfortable. And boy, did it work. Right. Yeah, getting comfortable <laughs> is possible. Exactly right. It is possible. <laughs> <laughs> it's <very> possible. <laughs> it really is possible and i know yeah. a lot of people who think that it's impossible to get comfortable yeah okay so the next i thank you for that that's that's excellent right to know what is possible rather than because we spend a lot of time on recognizing what's not possible but many things that are considered not possible are in fact possible getting comfortable is possible yes the next item on the list then is about karma, but the karma that the Buddha talks about that you can see the causality or the conditioning. In other words, this causes that. But if you have this happen and then later that happen, if there is no causal connection between the two, that means that they're just synchronicity. There is no causal uh, connection between the two. 
So an example of that in, in Thailand and in India, especially when someone was a destitute or broken or anything like that, then everybody around would say, oh, that's just his comma. He must have been a real jerk in his past life. And they do not have that causal connection. There's no connection between a past life and the, and the, and the current life. Uh, there's no store and forward mechanism that you actually have to see a causal connection. What the Buddha didn't know was the inverse square law, which means that things rot much faster than we think that they do. An inverse square has to do with time and distance, and if you move uh, twice the distance, that means that you only get a quarter of the power. Uh, and so the more time that something takes, the less likely it's actually going to be an influence on the situation. A really interesting way of talking about that is, is that the nation of Israel was created by Hitler. How did Hitler create Israel? Well, he had Auschwitz, he did a lot of damage, he killed a lot of people, and in response to that, the British government set up the nation of Israel, kind of as a consolation prize for what Hitler had done. Now, that kind of thinking is ridiculous because Hitler didn't have anything to do with the formation of Israel. Then, in fact, it could have been formed without even having the Holocaust. There would have been a whole lot more people in Israel. So we don't know that kind of stuff. But that's one of the, I mean, uh, if you're wanting to uh, apologize for or have an apology for Hitler, then saying, well, he created Israel is one of the really ridiculous things that you can say, but there, there's no cause and effect there. It was too long. It took too many years. He was dead in 1945, and the nation of Israel didn't even happen until, what, 48, 49, something like that. And it still wasn't even a nation then. Um, and so we have to understand that comma has operate with a cause and effect. That is not magical. But then the point that I hope that Robert is listening, because we're coming around to the the point that is here. Uh, yeah, Robert, with, Robert is listening. Robert is listening. OK, okay. so um, the next point is the one that is taken magically. That is translated magically. It's in the suttas. In the English language, it's talked about it magically, uh, even though the first part of the sutra has already disavowed all the magic. But yet this item is there, and that is, is that the Buddha can see into the past. He can see who he was with this name and this family and this situation, past life after past life after past life after past life. That's the, the magical way of talking about it. But basically what the Buddha is actually saying is, is that once you clean your closet, once you clean the mind out, then your memory systems, your reorganization is superb so that you actually do have a very, very good memory. Now, uh, that can actually be tested out in the sense that they have, uh, psychologists have the view that someone who um, uh, grows up and 
our childhoods are normally so traumatic that we don't remember much of anything. We kind of push it away. We don't get it. And so a lot of people don't remember anything happened before the age of six. And that's especially true if we live in the same house, the same town, the safe environment from one, two, three, four, five, up to 10, 11, 12, 13, and then we don't have any usefulness uh, of, of memory markers. Like I remember that happened at this time because I lived in that house at that time. But if I lived in the same house for many, many years, then it's hard to remember the uh, environment as an example of when something happened. But generally, the idea is that people don't remember much happened before they were uh, six years old, and we also don't remember a whole lot. But one of the things that is part of TA, and then later the part of the practice of the Buddha, is by cleaning the mind out, means that you begin to no longer associate the actual memories, the visual, auditory, the sensational memory with the kinesthetic or the feeling memory that we associate with it, that these almost always are connected together. How we felt about a situation and that situation are intimately tied together. Hmm. And because of that, People don't remember a whole lot of stuff because they don't want to bring up the tragedies of those memories. But when the mind is cleaned out, that's uh, going back with the closet analogy. Once you clean out the closet, you know where everything is. You organize it, you put it back, you may get shelves or hangers or all kinds of stuff. And things are not just piled in a great big pile in there the way that they are in the mind that we begin to organize things which means that now we can remember things very, very clearly. And so it's actually a, um, uh, worthwhile to muse, to sit there with a strong, still, quiet, functioning, happy mind to go back and recall and recollect stuff that happened. Do you remember your fourth birthday party? If you had a party, what was the present that you got for the fourth, fourth, fourth birthday? What house did you live in? What will your bedroom look like? Go and start asking those questions and do that evaluation. And you'll recognize that there is an entire huge amount of memory that you just were not at one time. It was impossible for you to bring that stuff up. But with the proper training, you can remember almost everything that happened. But you have to be, go ahead. You're actually encouraging dig, digging back in the past while we're in a good state and and seeing mm. and kind and of seeing it from a different point of view. Right. A recollection that this stuff is not just randomly popping up to bite us in the butt, but rather that we're actually investigating. Interesting. Okay. Investigating the mind and bringing this stuff up so that a Buddha can remember what names he was called, the locations, the people who were around him, and all kinds of stuff. Now, there was something very interesting that happened with me. Uh, my dad had, he was a very interesting character, and I don't really give him a lot of credit or talk about him very much. But one of the things that's important to start off with is that he was actually a half breed. He was half 
Native American and half white man. His dad was white. His mother was Indian. And when I was a little kid, he would take me to all kinds of Indian things. We went to the rodeo, not for the rodeo, but for the halftime performance that the Indians would do because they would come out on all their regalia and and do their war dancing or the rain dancing and things like this this was in oklahoma in the 1950s and so uh it was very much a part of the community as well as when um my grandfather died when we cleaned the house out i was able to take a home with me a huge amount of native american uh paraphernalia including bones that were stripped you know bone vest um, um that, that kind of stuff, yeah. and arrows, and an old bow, and all kinds of stuff that I was able to, to get. But we're talking about stuff now, uh, a huge amount of memories that I have that happened when I was six years old. Wow. Because he died when I was six. My grandfather died when I was six years old, and we moved out of Shawnee, Oklahoma when I was seven. So starting with at the age of eight, all of my memories are in South Carolina. But for the uh, but I remember so much happening that happened before I was age of six. So when I heard the psychologist say that most people don't remember very much. Well, I remember a huge amount. I remember almost everything. In fact, I could almost give you a blow by blow of what happened. It would take me six years to tell you all that happened in my first six years. <laughs> wow! <laughs> wow! Uh, I, I have a question on that. Um, how do you know that these are true memories versus, uh, you know, like maybe you like? I remember one time in another of your talks, you mentioned how you remembered this particular tree being planted a in a particular tree, place. And I thought, exactly. Right. So, how do you distinguish between the real memories and the the fake ones? Well, uh, generally, even that memory was still a memory of the tree. It was just a different tree that my grandfather had planted. Mm. So it wasn't that wrong of a memory. It was just that it wasn't this particular pecan tree that he planted. He, I was there when he planted a, a different tree. Mm. But it was in the same yard. Okay. And the tree that he planted didn't exist anymore. And so what I remembered was this tree exists. It must have been this tree. So that was the kind of mistake. But talking about it at that regard, uh, all of that happened when I was about three years old when we visited North Carolina because my wow. mom went home and we rode the train. And I remember that train ride a lot. I also remember my grandfather's uh, chicken coop. I remember helping him pull feathers out of a chicken and then using a paper bag uh, to set the, uh, the skin on fire uh, to, to help clean the rest of that chicken. I mean, I remember so much stuff. <laughs> I remember oh my, my mom. And, <laughs> yeah, and you I remember re what you were thinking back then? No, I was so I was too young, but I do remember just so much stuff. Now, uh, back to my dad. Part of the reason for that was because I remember him telling me something. There was a time when there was a um, they were paving the street that we lived on there in Shawnee. And my dad says that he remembers a steamroller paving the street that he lived on. And it was the first street that was paved in Shawnee. And he said he was only 18 months old when that happened. So we're talking about 1908, <laughs> 1909, they paved the road in Shawnee. 
and he remembers that. And so because he told me that, he gave me permission at that point in time to remember everything that happened. Now, mm-hmm. I don't remember. Now, then fast forward for many years, I'm not paying any attention. I'm not thinking about it. This is not part of it. And so I kind of forgot because I just wasn't recollecting. But when we look at this part about the Buddha remembering everything this happened, all of those events, yeah, I can come up with 100,000, easily 100,000 different events that happened when I was a kid. I remember exactly my fourth birthday that I got a um, uh, a doll. It was a Howdy Doody doll. You know Howdy Doody? Howdy Doody was a, uh, a children's program on television. It was sort of like uh, uh, um, the Disney uh, thing. But it, uh, Howdy Doody was a puppet. And he had, uh, there was Clarabelle the Clown and Phidias T. Bluster, who was the mayor of the town and all of that. But Howdy Doody was the star of this puppet show for kids on television in uh, early mm-hmm. 1950s. And so when I was four years old, my mommy gave me a, a, a doll, a Howdy Doody doll, and I hated it. <laughs> I hated it because I was a boy. And boys don't play with dolls. <laughs> <laughs> but on my fifth birthday, I got a bicycle, but it was a very special bicycle. It was a long ranger bicycle. Oh. And it mm. had black tassels coming out the sides of the handlebars, and it had a little scabbard with a toy gun in it. The back bicycle was completely black. <laughs> I remember that. I got that on my fifth birthday, and I remember that bicycle really, really clearly. <laughs> and so all of this kind of stuff. I remember when I was uh, in that time that we had a piano that was an old, old, old piano and that I would take the, uh, the ivory and, and peel the ivory strips off of the top of the keys so that they weren't white and black anymore. <laughs> and things like this. I mean, there's just so much. Like I said, I can go on and on. But this is a part that oh, has to I, do I with. I found a Howdy Doody doll. Please tell. I'm going to drop it in the chat. Uh, I'd love to hear if this is the doll that you had. Yeah. Well, what happened with that right. doll was is that is. The, uh, the body rotted off, but we kept the head of it. <laughs> that's it. That's, <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's it. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of a creepy doll. I see why you didn't like it. You know. <laughs> yeah, especially with the with the jaw. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, so getting then back to the the quality of the question of memory is that somehow or another the human mind stores things according to how we feel rather than according to chronological events. Interesting. Yes. And when we unhook the memories from the feelings with that went along with these memories, we can remember so many things that come up that we couldn't have um, known before, that we've mm-hmm. forgotten. And the reason that we forget it is because it's emotionally loaded. It's loaded down with stuff, and so we prefer not to remember. But in fact, you can remember if the mind is clear and sharp and focused and paying attention. Uh, and, and this is actually one of the skills 
that the Buddha mentioned as this is one of the powers is that we can remember really, really well. Mm. Uh, and for some reason, meditation has that quality of organization, cleaning out, uh, getting the mind uh, fit. And so you can start looking at that for yourself. Is your early childhood memories actually improving now? Can you recollect what happened? Do you remember being in diapers, for instance? That sounds like a whole lot of fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, as you were talking, I was kind of trying it out. I was like, yeah, I was uh, probably a little bit hungry the other night. And I started recollecting how much I used to like uh, honey nut Cheerios and warm milk <laughs> when I was a lot younger. Okay, expand that. Go from just the food into the table you were sitting at, the chair that you were in, and start expanding that uh, that memory. How much can you can you remember the room that you were in? Do you remember the furnishings? Was yeah. this the kitchen? Do you remember the stove that was in the kitchen, etc. Like that. Go now. Take a memory tour of the house that you were in when you remember just having that cereal that's how you break it that's how you do that and if you take a walkabout in the environment that you can remember a thread on and you can pull that thread and all of a sudden you remember everything about that house oh yeah you remember your mommy's room and you didn't spend much time in your mommy's room but you remember it yeah <laughs> yep yep yeah, so you see that uh, just be talking about it, and those memories are starting to come back <laughs> that we just weren't paying attention well, to anymore. And and here we are walking around with this kind of library. It's it's got a whole lot of books that have been checked out and are missing, but that still doesn't mean that we have lost our childhood. That your childhood is still there and that you can pull uh, things out and uh, recollect and, and remember and uh, this. Now, let's get back to that article that you were talking about uh, before about that people, if they have lost their memory, they feel bad. But they really haven't lost it at all. It may have been lost through blunt force trauma, and uh, the idea would be if they've had electroshock therapy that they have forgotten. But one of the happy stories about people who have had amnesia is, is that they just remember one thing. And then they start putting that together with other little memories around that one yeah. thing. And pretty soon, all of a sudden, everything clears up. And then now they come back and they remember their past. Mm. Uh, and so amnesia does not mean that the, uh, uh, the memories are lost forever. They're completely erased. What it really means is, is that those mm. items are stored into your closet. But then that electroshock therapy filled up your whole closet and you can't find all of the old stuff because you've got all of this new crap in, in the way it is covering up. And we want that to be um, part of the practice in the sense that if we've got a lot of garbage and a lot of sewage and a lot of bad feelings and a lot of old memories that are trauma, by having new current memories that are always wholesome, that means that we're more likely going to be drawing on the newer stuff if it's wholesome. 
But unfortunately, what happens with most of us is that we start out with a wholesome childhood and then we layer it and layer and layer with huge amounts of unwholesome stuff. And it's hard to dig down to the original wholesomeness that was there when we were little kids. And not only that, but all of the traumas and all the stuff that's happened is what we use for an identity. That people who have lost their memory, one of the things that makes them miserable is they don't know who they are. The reality is, is that they will, whatever they are or whoever they are, they're not their memories. Hmm. You are not. Interesting. Yeah, I had an interesting uh, reframe today, and this is for later conversation or later, maybe later tonight, maybe tomorrow or whenever I talk to you next or whenever I talk to you about my father. But um, I got an email from him today that was full of unwholesome (laughs) and I responded to it um in a I very hope you wholesome... haven't sent that letter yet don't don't respond to an unwholesome letter the first month oh i i responded to it but i responded to it pretty wholesomely um and what was interesting about it is it was actually we had a little exchange so i sent the letter that i sent you yesterday um mm-hmm. with that little addition that you that you asked to add and then he responded pretty decently and then i responded to that, you know, pretty, pretty good. And then he responded with a lot of unwholesome. And anyway, in that one with a lot of unwholesome, I responded to that pretty wholesomely. And as I was, after I sent it, I was thinking about that and how in responding to his letter, it caused me to want to find positive aspects of what he was talking about that I would not have found had he not been unwholesome to begin with. <laughs> mm-hmm. And and it was about certain things where I found the positive, which I wouldn't have found had he not been so negative. And I realized that I've actually had a lot of confidence my whole life, in part because of how negative he's been. And I've it's forced me to have no choice but to either, you know, just be na- completely negative all the time or develop confidence in response so, mm-hmm. so i've taken on some negativity but i've also taken some confidence because it's been part of how i've survived you know um mm-hmm. and so that's that was really interesting to have that reframe of of oh i've actually gotten a lot of confidence in part from having to do this in order to get myself to go forward you know because yes. i have no other choice as difficult as mountain climbing is when people do it they feel confident because they have the success. And so if you can climb the mountain of your own father, that's quite mm-hmm. an accomplishment. That gives us a feeling of success. I can handle that. And then at the bigger issue, when you climb the mountain of your own mind, <laughs> that gives you really supreme confidence that you can handle anything. Yep. <laughs> All right. And part of that climbing of one's own mind is to look back into the valley and recognize and see things very, very clearly. We can recollect the past. That, in fact, is very valuable to do so, but we're doing it intentionally, methodically organized with direct investigation to where most of the past for ordinary people comes up randomly, haphazardly, uh, yep. unorganized, 
and uh, let us say becomes a minefield. And so this is why in our practice we want to talk about and tell the students do not mix in the past because the past is dangerous. But once we get the mind cleaned out, now the past is a paradise to go play in. Yeah. It's actually quite marvelous <laughs> to remember. Hey, man, I remember that doll that I got. I remember that bicycle. I remember the second bicycle because I got that when I was six years old and it was a big bicycle. That's great. <laughs> Yeah. And so I, re I remember these things and, and it brings joy when you're clean because you are free and satisfied with this present moment. You can go back and, and become clean and free and satisfied with your entire past. So in the beginning for the ordinary people, the past is a plague. It's a minefield. But for the um, uh, the one who is awake and alert and can see what's going on clearly, it becomes a pasture. It becomes a playground. <laughs> and this is what the Buddha was was talking about is, is that we have really, really a good ability to remember all kinds of things. Now, that has been translated mostly by ignorant people reading this uh the sutta including ignorant translators and trying to make this into magical stuff but it actually is a real power the power to have a really clear memory that you can remember stuff and in fact that that even goes to the point of when we're reading stuff now that when we're reading stuff because we are reading and paying attention to it this stuff actually gets in most people, when they read, they read something and the eyes start moving down the page and they're not they're thinking about the, the literature that's being read or being that they're reading, not actually doing the reading. They're just thinking about it. We'll read one sentence and then have a thought and the eyes continue along the page. But now the mind is just trotted right off into some place because yeah. we don't have any control over it. And so this is another feature of memory has to do with the fact that we've got to pay attention. We've got to really look. If we're reading, we should read. And if we're not reading, we should know that we're not reading, that we're just sitting here with this thing in front of us, but we don't care enough about it to actually read it. That was the way that I first approached your uh, article when you said it. And then I said, no, I'm actually going to read this thing and see what's what's there. That's why I remember so many <laughs> of the details of, of it. It was because I decided to actually read it. <laughs> Glad you did. Yeah. Um, well, it it is a feature because in this article, it also talks about how um, to erase the memories uh, through this electroshock therapy because the memory is what pe keeps people depressed. They keep hashing the same problems over and over and over again, and they get themselves kind of ground down. They grind themselves down with all this illegitimate uh, thought yep. process. And so giving them electroshock therapy is uh, basically what that does is that it rearranges everything. It's almost like that a whole basket of clothes that you're carrying around, suddenly you throw them all up into the air, they come back and they land, but they don't land in the same order that they, uh, uh, that they, that they left in. So things get rearranged with this uh, electroshock therapy. 
and people kind of forget a whole lot of stuff. And then, wow, what a relief that is. <laughs> but then the identity crisis sets in because I, who I am is based upon what I remember. It me, I am my past. I am my thoughts. I am this, I am that. It's the mentality people have. And when their uh, memories are forcibly taken away from them, either through blunt force trauma or through electroshock therapy, the relief of not having to think about all of that is then replaced with, yeah, but who the hell am I? Yep. Because that question, who am I, is a common question that we all ask, but then we start to recollect and remember the past and we kind of get the idea, oh, I know who I am because I remember who I am. But this guy who's got this electroshock therapy, who am I? He's got no answer to that question. Then, in fact, yep. many of the uh, movies and whatnot about people who have amnesia, the whole story of uh, the whole movie is all about them trying to go back to figure out who they were. And all they get out of it is the memories come back, but they still haven't figured out who they are, but they are under the delusion of they know who they are now because they've got their memories back and they remember who they are. I'd like to share something. Pardon? I'd like to share something. Yes. So when I was, uh, when I visited my dad in Arizona to conquer that mountain, (laughs) which I did, uh, my my grandma lives with my dad and she's having major memory loss, Alzheimer's or whatever it is, and usually quite miserable because of it. But being a dumb dude, I I went in there with joy and she was basically she didn't remember who I was. Uh and so she was meeting this new person you know not as what she remembered me as a child or whatever but Mm -hmm. as some wandering man that just you know arrived at the house and she began to um actually share the most wholesome memories from her childhood with me over and over and over and over again and every time i uh I responded with, like, it was the first time I heard it, just with, you know, just so much excitement. Thanks so much for sharing this with me. This is great. And she would share it again and again and again and again. And, uh, yeah, it was the most wholesome, uh, uh, the greatest experience I've ever had with my grandma. And she didn't have a clue who I was. It doesn't matter. Wow. <laughs> well, what did matter, though, was is that uh, your joy and your cheer triggered something in her yeah. or something that you did so that she began to look for something really pleasant in her life. And all yes. she can bring up was childhood memories. And that's exactly correct, that, that um, when people suffer in old age through Alzheimer's, that's all that they tend to be able to remember, that all the stuff that, that happened when they were adult, they tend to forget. But those childhood memories really are there. They're just stored in the back of our mental closet. 
And so when the front part of her closet is damaged, now she's just so miserable her whole life. Uh, uh, Alzheimer's patients are notorious for being grumpy, really, really grumpy. But you were able to go in there with your joy and get her to go past that grumpiness of the adult and go back to those really fond childhood memories. Yeah, it was wonderful. That everybody is, it's really hard for most of us to realize that the best times of our lives happened before we were five years old. <laughs> because that was a child of, uh, that was a time of wonder. That was a child, time of investigation. Later childhood and adulthood is all about what we know, not about what we're discovering. Ah, yeah. And, and so childhood is all about discovery. It's fascinating to a child. Everything is fascinating to a child. Okay, so getting that, that childhood wonder or that fascination back again is part of the process of uh, uh, awakening. To where Alzheimer's is almost like the consolation prize because that's all she's got left. Because all of the adult memories and all of that kind of stuff, in fact, it's, it's quite interesting to look at the autopsies of the brains um, uh, through an autopsy of people who have had Alzheimer's. In fact, the brain damage that is seen in the uh, autopsy is the actual definition of Alzheimer's. You really don't know what's going on with a person until after they die and then they cut the brain open to see the rot the real rot that's in the brain that is caused by Alzheimer's, and they still haven't quite figured out why it's true. But one of the major suspects is TAB, Coca-Cola's uh, uh, TAB. They took it off the market, by the way. Oh, the drink, the soda. The drink, TAB, wow. had a chemical in it that seems to have been uh, a part of the reason why people uh, have so much Alzheimer's now. The other possibility is because people are living longer now and that the older you get, the worse the brain gets. It's just part of the deterioration of old age. But there is significant, significant evidence that needs to be researched. We can't actually point the blame at the finger and says Tab did it. <laughs> but I do know that Tab uh, is is suspected that the chemicals in Tab um, are the things that bring on um, Alzheimer's. Um, uh, the the chemicals that are used for sweetening. In the old days, all they had was saccharin. But saccharin uh, had a very bitter taste. It really, things weren't sweet with saccharin at all. And so, um, um, so this thing uh, is called aspartame. Tab. It's I like think, a drink. Yeah, yes, I, I think like the word is, is aspartame. Aspartame yes. is the chemical that seems yep. to be uh, not fully researched, but indicates that uh, Alzheimer's is caused by um, these kind of drinks. People still do uh, aspartame as like a sugar, uh, like replacement, right? Yes. Yes. That's why they put it in the tab. It's uh, they use, other they use that in diet too, right? In diet, Pardon? isn't isn't diet soda using uh, aspartame? That's that's the whole point. That's it. 
That's why people drink these drinks. Is because they're they're diet drinks or whatnot like that. And there's other I hate, issues. I don't. Really, I, I mean, I don't like diet personally. I think it tastes gross. But. I don't drink soda. When I was a kid, I did. I loved soda. I could actually go right back into the memory bank now and pull out some soda memories. Okay. Right. Us talking about yeah. it begins to hook this up. So this is what you guys will probably do today is to start opening that memory bank, knowing that you can do so safely now. Yeah. Sure. That once the mind is cleaned out, we can deal with that past and get things organized so that we remember. But that memory does not define who you are now. Going back to that question, that's in fact the entire point is, is that people who have this loss of memory have a loss of identity. That their past identified who they were and they know who they were, at least uh, enough. But when people are, um, let us say, going on the spiritual path and begin to ask their questions, because a lot of people ask me about, well, who am I? Like, that's the most important question that there is. And the Buddha says, no, that who am I is an irrelevant question. It's bound to keep the people uh, locked up in the wrong kinds of things. Mm. So uh, basically, that's what we could call an identity crisis is when we don't know where we who we are. And for some reason or another, it becomes important. Where in mm. fact, who I am is not important at all. <laughs> what is important, what is worthy of evaluation, is the Four Noble Truths. This is suffering. This is the cause of it. This is the end of suffering. And so when we uh, pay attention that way uh, to what's going on, we can also do that with the mind in the past. Now, one of the things that's kind of important to, to point out with this is, is that some thoughts, some feelings, some past memories are wholesome and some are not. The average ordinary person doesn't make that kind of distinction and for them, recollecting the past is dangerous because it'll mm -hmm. bring up bad feelings, especially if I remember the argument that I had with Aunt Susie last week and then I remember I had an argument with Aunt Susie a year ago and now all of a sudden I really hate Aunt Susie. Mm. Yeah. And probably that, but I have the memory of hating Aunt Susie because I've been arguing with her for years, mm -hmm. right? And and so that's all we remember of Aunt Susie. But when we can clean that all that argument stuff out, we can begin to remember Aunt Susie the way Aunt Susie actually was, not about yeah. what we did with her within our you know, mind. Yeah. Yeah, you know what's interesting about that is often after people die, we tend to think of them more positively. Mm -hmm. Whether it's uh, someone that we actually know in our lives or even a famous person, like we'll often think of them more positively. Whenever we reflect on them, it's much more about their positive traits. And mm -hmm. it's like, why couldn't we have done that while they were alive? <laughs> why can't you do that while you're still alive? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And in yeah, a way, yeah. this is what we're doing is, is that we're going back into the past and we're recollecting it cleanly, not 
with the feelings of identity and who we were and all of that kind of stuff. So we can remember getting insulted, but we don't have to feel insulted when we remember that we were insulted, even if we felt insulted when when it happened. Now we remember it. Normally, when people remember it, they also remember that not only that that I was insulted at that time, but now I feel insulted when I remember it. The trick is, is can you remember the insult joyfully without feeling insulted right now? The feeling is optional. The memory is there. But we almost always associate the feelings that we had with the event. That it was me that got insulted. Therefore, when I think of being insulted, it's me who gets insulted again. Whether that is just a memory. That's the identity or who am I kind of question that the Buddha says. That, ki- that question is, irre- is bound to cause us suffering if we try to figure out who we are. Because who we are is defined by all the crap that's ever happened to us. <laughs> That is better to see that crap as crap and then throw it us out, get it out. In the beginning, we want to throw out the memories and the crap and everything and just be here now. But once the mind is really cleaned out, now we can go back into those memories and oh, really oh, this, see yeah. things the way that they actually were rather than how we felt when it happened. Actually, there's something I've been meaning to ask you for a little while now. This just reminded me of. Um, so I remember on one of your calls, um, you were talking about, I don't know if I was on the call or if it was a YouTube video, I forget, but you were talking about a neuroscientist that you said was teaching the Dhamma without even knowing what the Dhamma was. And he was doing it on YouTube. What, what mm-hmm. is the name of the scientist? I would love to, to watch this. Don't remember. Oh, that's too bad. Because it ha- I could name you a lot of scientists or um, um, philosophers um, and, and, and such who do really wholesome things. And then there are others who are doing really unwholesome things, and most of us are a mixed bag. Yeah. But, but I would say that as neuroscience is growing and improving, it's going towards the truth that they really do want to know what's actually going on inside the mind. Right. And that's exactly what the Buddha was doing 2,500 years ago. So he just got a little head start on them is all. Right. Well, I was really like that video, the UK Sangha video. I, I got pretty far and it's a quite a long one, so I haven't quite finished it yet, but um, you and, and I believe Debbie, the, um, uh-huh. Indian woman. Yes. Yeah. You were, you were discussing the, the neuroscience. She was discussing the neuroscience about building habits, you know, habitual ways of thinking and that kind of, it's very interesting, you know, to listen to. Yeah. yeah. Within the past year or two, she's actually gotten her new PhD in behavioral psychology. Hmm. And so that was her foundation. That was why that, um, discussion was so interesting. Yeah, and yeah, that was one of the best right, ones I've heard in a while. Yep. Right in the end of it, Robert brought up some readings that he had done about um, left brain, right brain, because uh, there was research done on um, uh, stroke victims, because strokes normally will happen in one area of the brain that just happens to be on one side or the other. 
And so the, the stroke victims, uh, re the research on stroke victims gave the idea of the left brain and the right brain and all of that. But Debbie was quick to, to point out, she was even faster to point out that I, that it looks like that it has more to do with the layers of the brain rather than the left and the right. That there are certain, th certain things that have to do with the left and the right because of the twist in the spinal cord. The actual functions of the left hand are performed with the right anterior cortex. And the functions of the right hand are handled on the left side of the uh, cortex. We can do easy brain scans to see that. But that doesn't mean that the entire brain is split in two. Doesn't mean that at all. But in fact, under that, um, there's a bridge that connects the frontal cortex on both sides. But what they fail to talk about is, is that under that bridge, the solid neurons, they, there's a gap. But that gap actually is filled in where you have brain cells touching each other down through there, that there's no real separation in this vertical sense that the that is much more has to do with evolution of um layers that the bottom layer would be the cellular layer the next layer would be the insect mind layer the next layer above that would be the reptilian layer and that's where we really get into things because our our human body actually functions the way that a reptile reptile's brain functions and so the anterior cortex is very much like a reptile. And then the mid cortex is very much like the animal, the mammals, and then the top or the frontal cortex. And so this is something that we discuss later in there, that there is no real distinction behaviorally anymore that the scientists have gotten beyond their left brain, right brain business and beginning to look at it uh, structurally uh, in the same realm that we look at things functionally in the sense that we can function like a reptile and when we function like a reptile we're using the area of the brain the structure of the brain that's reptilian when we're acting like an animal when we're functioning like an animal we're doing that in the area of the brain that that animals function the uh the uh what they call the uh the mammalian brain or the uh, the temporal cortex, this area around here. And and so when we're acting human, really human, top quality human, that means that we're altruistic, that we take care of each other, that we're nurturing and uh, all of that as well as smart and brilliant. That's done with the frontal cortex. And so the function of being human is done by the structure that is only humans have. This is new research. This is this is really, I mean, um, <laughs> Debbie's got a PhD in this stuff. <laughs> yeah, very cool. So she's really what? into that kind of thing. And so, uh, yeah, yeah, she was the first one to correct it that it's not left brain, right brain. And then I chimed in, but she had already stolen all my thunder. I was about to <laughs> jump on that left brain, right brain stuff with both feet. She beat me to it. This guy, James Nestor, who talks about the whales, the beluga whale, having the part of the brain that makes us human is like six times larger in the beluga whale. Or is it the, it's a sperm whale, actually. The sperm whale is six times larger in there. I think that's an interesting uh, concept to explore. 
Absolutely. Yeah. That, that's one of the things that they're finding out, that there are species of animals that live on this planet that are smarter than humans. They just didn't do it with mathematics. They did it with logistics. They did it with uh, uh, navigation. I mean, whales, they really, there are actual individual whales that have been all over. None of us have been all over. None of us have gone off the coast of Japan and then off the coast of China and then off the coast of the Philippines and then circled around the islands of the Philippines and down into the Gulf of Thailand and all of that stuff. None of us have done any of that kind of stuff. And they do it with knowledge. They know where all the feeding grounds are and everything like that. Whales are just amazing creatures. So... So I've got to ask, so what do you think of those cases where like a guy gets struck by lightning and then suddenly he's a master piano virtuoso? Never happened. Yeah, there that's happened before. stories about that. Well, there's good yeah. stories. I mean, we can invent, uh, that's not possible. <laughs> it's happened, it's happened. I'm, I'm going to look it up right now. Um, man gets Well, it's not possible for you and me. Yeah, <laughs> and we try to explain it. There are some things that we just can't explain. I would say that there are things that we can't explain, but becoming a virtuoso on the piano by someone who has spent their whole life not playing the piano, and then in middle age or late age, he gets struck by lightning, and all of a sudden he's a piano virtuoso the way that I yeah, this is a piano virtuoso. Yeah, but, not a chance. No, that's he true. cannot play. He could not play Franz Liszt um, um, Etude or a Nocturne unless he's heard it. No, they, they've actually, like, recorded this. Um, they have videos of this guy. Um, they have an interview with him. I'll send you the article. Um, okay. What did that mean? Did he that all of a sudden he could play one piece of music, five pieces of music? When I use the word piano virtuoso, I'm talking about someone who has a, a vocabulary or a repertoire of thousands of songs. All right. So here's what happened. So here's the interview. So they ask him, tell us what happened when you woke up from the lightning strike. Well, I woke really pissed because it was painful and I didn't want to be there. When the lightning hit me in the face and where it came out my foot, it was like somebody had stuck a hot poker in both the places. I was able to get up and walk, so my family just loaded me in the car and took me home. That was kind of a beginning of everything. And they ask, how do you mean it was the beginning of everything? I was a bit foggy at first, but the fog cleared after a few weeks, and then I started to have this incredible desire to hear classical music. So I bought this CD of Vladimir Ashkenazi, a famous Russian pianist playing his favorite Chopin, I started listening to it nonstop. Then I made everyone else listen to it as well. I'm sure they were pretty sick of it. But then I had this realization that listening to this would not be enough. I would need to learn how to play it. So you got a piano and started playing. How did that go at first? You know, my hands had no idea what to do. I was struggling to wrap my head around every aspect of it. It was really hard, but I just started teaching myself. A little while later, yada, yada, yada. You dream your own composition. Yep, and I got up and I walked to the piano that was sitting in the living room. I started picking out some of the melodies I heard, but didn't. Okay, this goes on and on, but um, but okay, basically, well, what you're doing it, you see how you announced that, and my initial response was that's impossible. <laughs> 
and that I started to describe how it could be possible. And you started reading that. And what you're reading is what I would say could be done. In other words, he actually got very interested and very curious in Chopin. Yep. No one learns to play Chopin unless they really love Chopin. You've got to hear it first. You got to hear it over and over and over and over and over again and get that stuff wired in. Now, I would go so far as to say that the lightning strike was irrelevant. Maybe it made him realize that life's short and he should, you know, figure out. (laughs) He realized, I like this. Maybe I should put some skin in the game. That kind of thing. Then he had (laughs) to put some skin in the game. Exactly. You cannot say that he got struck by lightning and all of a sudden he woke up, the fog clears, and now he's just all over the keyboard. No. (laughs) When he sat down to the keyboard, he had strong desire to learn to play, and he recognized that his fingers did not have the uh, what muscle memory that it would take right. to play Chopin. But guess what? He practiced, and he developed that muscle memory, but he did so out of the desire for really wanting to do it. Right. There is nothing magical there. There is nothing about, in fact, this has nothing to do with being hit by lightning. It has to do with the love of Chopin. That's like far off, basically. <laughs> I'm sorry, yeah. what'd you say? Um, uh, I said that's a lot of uh, distant cause and effect you're trying to put together. Right, exactly. That that everybody is putting, oh, he learned to play Chopin because he was struck by lightning. No, he <laughs> learned to play the piano because he, after he was struck by lightning, he fell in love with Chopin and he really wanted yep. to learn to play it. Next thing we're going to yeah. talk about, you started Israel. Precisely. This is exactly right. the same thing. It's exactly the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> the cause and effect are too distant to have a direct link that it was the um, uh, thank you for reading that. that that's very good I mean what an excellent education to recognize about magical thinking it's magical thinking to think that people get struck by lightning and now they're virtuoso piano players didn't happen that way <laughs> it makes for a great story <laughs> Oh, it makes a great story, though, and all we have to do is just leave out some of the key details. Yeah. <laughs> like when he tried to sit down to play the piano, he recognized he didn't have the motor skills. Yep. But he developed those motor skills because he wanted to. And not only that, but if you listen to a piece of music over and over and over and over again, I got a good example of that because this just happened last night. That in when I was looking through some of the music library that I had, I ran across a video of uh, it. This one is Beethoven's uh, one of the sonatas. It's the it's actually referred to Moonlight as the sonata. Moonlight Sonata. But I'm talking about most specifically the second and the third movements. Uh, And in this video, it has both the sheet music and also a keyboard at the bottom. And then when the the note is being played, they've got little bars or or things like that. So you can see the music coming. Well, um, I learned the first movement. Learned the second movement. 
But that third movement always gave me a lot of trouble. And here I am sitting now at my computer and seeing the sheet music, listening to this thing, and watching the little dots come back and forth of where the keys are on the keyboard. And I'm actually there being able to recollect and play that thing with my fingers. I can, you know, I can do it this way. And when the bass goes down, I'm doing it like this. And then here I'm wondering if everybody in the household is looking at me being crazy with my fingers because I'm actually playing a piano right here, except that there's no physical keyboard. The, the keyboard is up here, but the music, every note is there. And I can contrast that with, the, um, there's a movie called... Um, Copying Beethoven is the name of the movie, uh, 2006, and it's a story about a woman who was a, um, a composer and a uh, music copyist, and that uh, Beethoven asked for help, and the professor at the university sent his best student, it happened to be a young 23-year-old woman, and so the whole movie now is about Beethoven's relationship to this uh, young woman, that ends with him actually directing the first opening performance of the Ninth Symphony while she's um, uh, sitting uh, in the stage below where nobody can see her, and she's directing, and he's watching her direct because he's completely deaf. <laughs> okay, but in there, in the movie, they are actually chopping up Beethoven's Ninth Symphony. And every time that they play part of it and I get into it and I'm listening to it and then they'll cut and they'll play another part of that symphony and my mind goes, what? <laughs> I was expecting you to play it correctly and here you are just chopping it up because this is a movie. <laughs> and you can't play the whole thing in a movie because the whole piece of music lasts for an hour. Oh. It's one of the longest pieces of music. In fact, when they first started doing CDs, one of the guys who was part of the manufacturing process says, you cannot put CDs out on the market unless you can get all of Beethoven's Ninth Symphony on one side. It's got to be played from here to there. And that's how I remember Beethoven's Ninth Symphony is from here to there. You start it, and then you keep going on it. And in this movie, they're chopping it up, and they're putting some of the fourth movement in the first movement, and some of the first movement. I mean, it's just all over the place. <laughs> and so I imagine that the real musicians, when they leave, when they hear that movie, they hate it. <laughs> because the editors of it chops the thing up. So anyway, um, the, the point here is, is that even people who are really skilled at music, that is a real skill that happens inside the mind. The mind gets organized in a completely different way by listening to classical music and, and stuff like that. And that also the writers of it in the first part of the movie were quite brilliant. I think that they did a fairly good job of, for their ability to climb into the mind of Beethoven just see, you know, to because they had to present him as how he was acting and behaving, because uh, we we have really good evidence that he in fact died from syphilis and was going crazy. That while he wrote the Beethoven's Ninth Symphony, he was actually pretty close to death. That this mm. is his ode to joy. In fact, the ode to joy is his last gasp. That's it. Mm. 
And so this is his death march. And it's wow. an ode to joy. And that and they showed him in 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 that in that kind of thing. So um get going back to your example of the guy who has a um an event with lightning and then he picks it up. That's actually quite promising because a lot of people say, oh, well, I can't do that because only someone who has been struck by lightning can become a virtuoso as an adult. The answer is he wasn't a virtuoso, but he did learn to play Chopin, but he learned to play Chopin because he loved Chopin. He got a CD is the article and he listened to it over and over and over and over and over and over again. And I say over and over again because I'm making the point of repetition. Right. That, he, that actually he listened to that, that music enough to where he knew it note by note in his mind. And all he had to do now was connect the fingers to the music. And that was the only thing that he had to do because he had already learned the music itself. Sure. <laughs> I was going to, uh, I think you might have already answered it, but how do you think Beethoven uh, became as masterful as he did, especially being deaf? Repetition. Repetition. <laughs> repetition, 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 repetition. <laughs> repetition, 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 repetition. <laughs> but in fact, that was one of the things I remember having um, lectures when I was in uh, music school about Beethoven would take one little phrase and refine it and get it correct and then repeat that same phrase over and over and over and over and over again. And that was his music. Repetition. You can see it in the Fifth Symphony so easily. I mean, it just it slaps you in the face. The repetition in there. Da 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 that's the whole point of it. These long classical music is just all built on repetition. Getting to know that, start uh, start analyzing the music, listening to it over and over again, especially if you've got the sheet music there. You don't even have to learn to read music. All you need to do is to see how dense it is. How dense is this piece of paper? And then you start to be able to follow along what they're doing. This is a skill that to be developed, and then that gives you the whole idea about how, oh, what was on page three is now on page six. It's the same darn thing. <laughs> the same thing over and over and over and over again, the whole thing. Another example of that is the girl from Infinema. You know that song? You already got it going in your head. Okay, so listen how many times it was played. The whole song is just da 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 da. It's the whole show. It's the whole song. 
over and over and over again. So if this guy is listening to Chopin and listening to that CD over and over and over and over again, every node gets put into place. Exactly. Now, Chopin is at a certain quality. It's a certain, some, some of the stuff that Chopin done is absolutely brilliant, but it does not compare to Beethoven. <laughs> Beethoven stuff is sometimes much more complicated much more sophisticated in the way that it puts things together. And, um, uh, but it all is based upon repetition. Everything is repeated over and over and over. That's your whole life, in fact. Your whole life is nothing but something that you've done before. This is why we use the word react. This is what the whole teaching of the Buddha is about, is stop doing what you've been doing because you're in the habit of doing it and start making some new music in your life instead of listening to the same old tired stuff that you've been doing over and over and over again let's go on an adventure let's make so, a change here yeah so it's funny this gets back to the article you know because the guy that wrote the article that had the injury um he was talking about how when it first happened he felt it was a new beginning for him you know and he did a lot of things he never had done before um like he went and like joined like uh spiritual groups and you know, it was like going on trips and all of this. And, and, and he felt very liberated, you know, by being free of those old patterns and that old repetition. But then eventually he felt he couldn't really like live as someone without an identity. And so there's a way in which our identity, you know, which is just repetition, right? <laughs> in which that traps us. And yet we still kind of feel the need to have it, or many of us do in order to navigate society. Eric, do you got a bear? <laughs> was that was that was that Keyshawn's bear that you went to see? <laughs> I went to take a leak and it was <laughs> We're actually okay. gonna do a, uh, a night hike. <laughs> we hang well up listen here. carefully. Yeah, we'll do. <laughs> I don't think we have bears in Washington. I don't think so, but but Keyshawn's got him in his mind. And you can <laughs> yeah. uh, Eric, have you heard of any bears? I haven't. What's that? I haven't heard of any bears in Washington. I've seen bears in Washington. <laughs> oh, you have? Okay. Yeah. All right. Yeah, they've got right. woods in Washington. They've got now. You're going to be afraid of bears. I know. <laughs> <laughs> oh boy! First mosquitoes, now bears. Yeah. <laughs> oh, oh, I, yeah. Um, oh, I want to share this email from my father, but maybe when you guys get off or. Um, yeah, let's let's do that later. We've got other things to right. do. In fact, this is um, uh, uh, this call is kind of coming to an end or winding down. But I really do appreciate that we were able to talk about that issue about um memory and memory loss and how we identify with our memories. But when yep. we no longer are concerned with our memories, because now our focus in life is Dukkha Dukkha Naroda and coming out of the Dukkha, now we can go back into the past and see exactly what was going on without having the emotional baggage that we normally associate with our past. Like for instance, um, that I mentioned to you about the uh, the bicycle, the fifth birthday present, okay? 
if I think of that bicycle now as my bicycle and how good I felt when I got that present, because at least it was better than a Howdy Doody doll that I'd gotten the year before. Now I can begin to long for, oh, I would like to see a bicycle like that. Maybe I can look on eBay or Amazon. They still have uh, those kind of bicycles on eBay. And then I look on eBay and I'm disappointed because there's no bicycles just like that because that bicycle was uh, in honor of a TV star, the Long Ranger. And we haven't had Long Ranger TV series since 1954. So the likelihood of them producing bicycles like that is zero. So it would be impossible for me to get that kind of bicycle again. If I want it, I'm suffering. If I can just let that be a memory and I can just allow it to be a fond old memory without wanting that bicycle now, then it's a good memory. Mm. But if I remember that bicycle and then want it again, now I'm suffering. That's the problem with our memories is, is that we uh, we remember it almost as the good old days, like it was better than I longed for it to be like that. And so we wind up in a state of longing and wishful thinking and and misery when, in fact, the Buddha provides us with a skill that we can go back and re feel that way. We can actually feel the way that we felt like we were, we were when we were kids. We can get the excitement of that brand new bicycle without a brand new bicycle because it was just a feeling and we can create our own feelings when we have when we're in charge of our own feelings we can create the feelings that we want to and we can still then have that memory without identifying with with the memory it's not me because who i am is irrelevant to my joy mm -hmm. But if my identity is relevant to my joy, and that's what both of these uh, guys with both the uh, uh, the lightning strike and the uh, electrocephalograms or the uh, um, uh, the electroshock therapy, uh, they both suffered an identity crisis, right? Because of the loss of memory and whatnot like that. Well, everybody has an identity crisis on a regular basis. Because we don't know who we are. But the Buddha recommends, well, don't ask that question. <laughs> because you're not going to get a good answer. <laughs> and part of the reason why there's not a good answer to who we are is because you're a moving target. You are not fixed. Anicca Watta Sankara, everything is in flux. So what you were yesterday, I mean yesterday, there was a Kishan who hated bugs. Now there's the Keyshawn today that wears a hat. <laughs> it's not the same dude. So actually, that's one reason that childhood toys are a really good thing to test out with this, because you wouldn't want a toy that you had as a kid, as an adult. So you can just go back to that memory and feel completely neutral without wanting that thing. Um, whereas if you went back to two years ago to something you wanted, you might actually want the thing that you had two years ago. Yeah, I don't have to go back to 1949 to remember a bicycle and want it. I can go back to 1972 to my BMW motorcycle and want it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, there you go. 
And if you go back to 1949, it might be a trike, and you're not going to want a trike, you know. Maybe for your daughter. <laughs> Although she's too big for that, you know. Oh, she's beyond that. Yeah, she's nine. Yeah, she's, yeah, she's, now. she's beyond. Yeah. yeah she, when, when she stands to hug me, she, she comes all the way up to here on me. <laughs> she's not a kid anymore. <laughs> Remember, I got this really incredible toy. It was a, a air hog. It like flied. Like, it was like a little airplane drone thing. Uh-huh. And I was pretty young. And the first time I fired it after charging it, just getting so excited, I just flew it directly into a tree in the neighbor's <laughs> yard, and it was gone. <laughs> yeah. Short life. Yeah. <laughs> but you can also have that memory of that. Um, flying object hitting the tree, but it's me hitting the tree. Oh no, my poor thing looked like that. But now you can have that memory, and oh yeah, I remember that. Yeah, I felt so bad then, but right now I'm really enjoying remembering it. Yeah. <laughs> we have to disassociate the feelings of these memories so that we can meet them as memories rather than who I am. That the whole idea that we're talking about then is not a loss of memory itself because you really don't need to remember anything. What is really the issue with these guys that you're talking about is loss of identity. They thought they knew who they were and now they don't know who they are. And they don't like that because they thought that they did know who they are. But when we accept that, hey, I don't even know who I am. And that's okay. That's great. (laughs) And so it's not just uh, memory versus happiness. No, you can have the happiness and the memories, or you can uh, be happy without the memories. That happiness is optional to the memories. But what most people do is that they remember and then they uh, uh, remember not only what happened, they remember how they feel about it, and then they feel bad again. So we repeat the action. The action is the feelings that we have as a result to the events that are actually in the outside world. Instead of just recording the events, we package me into that event and then store that. So you so the feelings and the identities that we have with these old feelings can be removed through proper training and now that memory bank just opens up with enormous amounts of information. And you can recollect what it was like when you were a child, and those things can be extremely pleasant to remember what it's like. I mean, even your grandmother, uh, Eric, was like that, that that was her best part of the day, is remembering things that happened when she was a little child with all the baggage of the memories of being adult and who I am and identity and all of that kind of stuff. Absolutely. And the funny part about it is all of this that we're talking about is this is in the sutta, but it's badly translated, and so it looks magical. Instead of even... I'm so glad you cleared it up, because I've read the sutta before and didn't quite understand it in this way at all, so this has been really great. Excellent, excellent. Well... Guys, let's finish this off. This has been a delightful conversation, as usual. 
And thank you so much, uh, uh, Robert, for bringing this point up about memory, memory loss, and other things like that. Aye, aye, Captain. Because, because we really, uh, unless there's really physical damage, like with Alzheimer's, Alzheimer's, we know for sure that that is a rotting of the actual cortexes of the brain. But lightning strikes don't do that. Electroencephalograms or uh, um, uh, electroshock therapy doesn't destroy the brain the way that alcohol and um, Alzheimer's does. Which means that everything that's ever happened to you is buried down in there someplace. It's just buried under a bunch of dirt. And when you clean the dirt out of the way, you can begin to, the, that stuff just bubbles right up. <laughs> One of the clearest ways that you can see that is when the student at university is getting ready for an exam. If he was paying attention in class and got what was going on, then he doesn't need to study. All he has to do is remember. But most students are not paying attention in class. Therefore, they've got to go study later. When they do it, they do it under pressure. Instead of just enjoying the learning and then testing it because you know, now we've got um, fear of the exam itself. And that fear of the exam is often going to be what we've got on our mind when we go in there. And therefore, we're going to screw up that exam because we're afraid of taking the exam because we don't think that we're properly prepared because we weren't paying attention in the first place. So if the student goes into the class of, uh, in the beginning of the class with the understanding or the intention, I'm going to listen to what this guy's saying because it's going to make me taking the exam a piece of cake. That's the way to go to college is to go to college with the full intention. I'm going to listen. I'm going to learn. I'm going to pay attention. I'm going to get this information. And then because I've got it, the exam's a piece of cake. That's usually how I did it. I'd just pay attention and engage a lot. And then I wouldn't study that much. A little bit. You know what I wasn't familiar with. don't have to study with, when you know the material. Yeah. Yep. Yes, exactly. <laughs> And so when I see students uh, on the interviews and I, and, I, and I talk and then I see them writing down and I have to pause because I got to wait for them to finish writing, that really when you're taking notes in school, you're not paying attention. Or let us say that you paid attention long enough to get the note and say, oh, I've got to write that down. And while I'm writing down, students not listening anymore and the teachers are not going to start while people are writing stuff down. So if you're taking notes, you're only listening to about half of what's being said. Right. But if you're not taking notes because you are actually taking the information in <laughs> because you're paying attention to it, you're listening, you're observing. In that regard, there's really nothing special about the teachings of the Buddha at all. Because we, I mean, this is just life. That if you really want a hard time, then take notes and worry about the exam and then you'll have a low grade or you can walk in there and just pay really close attention to what's going on. And now the exam's a piece of cake. <laughs> and in fact, many of the times when the students are taking the exam, they're not actually taking the exam. They're worried about taking the exam while they're taking the exam. And if you're worried about taking the exam, while you're taking the exam, oh, what will my score be? Oh, did I get that one right? And all of those kind of things. 
you're not going to do as good a job. Yeah, I had a professor that was really good about that, where he didn't have any exams. He just had papers. Just two papers, that's all it's due, the whole class. You get to choose whatever topic, as long as it's related to the class, one of the books or a couple of the books. But he wouldn't have any exams. There's no pressure to memorize this stuff. So you could just listen to him talk and, and you know, engage with him and then just write the paper. And the paper comes. Mm -hmm. and Right. So that exam know, winds up method. being yep. pressure for people when they don't have to feel pressurized by taking an exam at all. Yeah. And I remember a lot more of that class than ones where I had the pressures of the exams. Isn't that amazing? Isn't <laughs> <Yeah>. that amazing? <laughs> <laughs> exactly that we remember things when we're paying attention to stuff well guess what when we were little kids we really paid attention to stuff it was curious we, i mean we had when we were little kids the world was a marvelous place to investigate and when we get older now getting the job done is far more important than having fun investigating so really the dama dude's <laughs> life is all about learning to be a kid again to learn to investigate, to look, to pay attention, to be eagerly um, wanting to know, to see. Curiosity is the name of the game. As opposed to, oh, you've got to learn this. Oh, you've got to make a good grade. You've got to prove who you are. That's what our society has done to us. Can we come back to being a kid again? Go play. <laughs> Guys, let's finish this up. But this has been a marvelous talk. I really enjoyed this. this haven't been able to, been yeah, able to talk about it so much because <laughs> I'm so much too into teaching the students the beginning part of you got to get out of the past. You got to get out of the past because it's so emotionally laden. But once you've gotten out of the past and you got your mind really cleaned up, now the past is a wonderful playground. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so excited to, to play around and check into uh, explore and go on an adventure. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Awesome. Well, guys, this has been great. We'll see you later. I really like right. your hat, Keyshawn. I really like your hat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's a cool hat. <laughs> okay, bye. Guys, bye. -bye. Okay. Cheers. See you soon. <laughs>